Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Overwhelmed? Trying to do it all. Well, the name of this show is How She Really Does It, and today we will find out how award-winning journalist for the Washington Post, Bridget Schulte, finds time in her life, even with overwhelm knocking at her door right now. Bridget brilliantly researched and analyzed and offered up a hilarious personal confession about the time crunch of our modern busy lives in her new book, Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. Bridget, hello and welcome to my show. Hi, Corinne. Thank you so much for having me. So I have to tell you, I was I did get a bit overwhelmed by reading your book. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully not by the end. The no. It's a little breathless, but hopefully by the end it gets better. The end is, it's really important. I want the listeners to hear that because, you know, I got the book and it's quite thick and small words and I was like, oh my goodness. And, you know, I have this, I have to practice my own Jedi master trick of that voice of, you're a slow reader, Corinne, right? <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't help me any. And, um, but it was great. And, you know, I kept going back to the book, but that that initial there was, for me, my personal experience was kind of almost despair, like reading it and seeing the research or seeing like the realities that so many people face. And I'd be like, oh, and then there'd be that part, the next part in the book where there'd be hope like, hey, yes, there are some not so great work environments. And then here are some ones that are really trying to make it work in this new world of work right? And the realities that are going on. And here's here's some relationships that are really struggling. And here's how I'm turning it around and trying to practice these things. So by the end, like, and I just ask the listeners, read it all the way through because you will be inspired. And there's some really, truly great takeaways in the book for you to go and practice. So don't let the overwhelm, the initial overwhelm uh, stop you. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because I wrote the book you know, the the structure and the format kept changing as I continued to report. And at one point, it had a very different structure. I was going to do the whole first part of the book about how everything was bad. <laughs> I had two questions that I was asking. Why are things the way they are and how can they be better? And so the whole first half of the book was what, what made work, love, and play challenging. And then the second half was going to be all the bright spots and what the hope was. And as I was talking to my editor and publisher, Sarah Crichton, who's such a brilliant woman, she said, you know what? If we front load it with all of this depressing stuff, nobody's going to get to the back end. <laughs> And I thought, you know what? You're really right. Because I, you know, as I was writing it, I'd be like, oh, this is so depressing. And then my energy would sort of drop. And so what I found is in reorganizing the book, it's almost like think of a sine curve, you know, that goes up and down and up and down. And I thought, okay, this is what I want. I want people to kind of go down, you know, oh, this is depressing. This is frustrating. And then go up again. It's like, oh, wow, here's hope. Like, here's what's wrong with work or here's why it's like this. Look at these cool things. And then you go down again with like, oh, no, look at the gender stalled gender revolution. Ah, this is frustrating. And then, oh, wow, look, here's hope. And so you would have this 
almost roller coaster experience. And what I wanted to, people to feel by the end is that it wasn't hopeless, that you got these moments of hope throughout, that by the end, it would make you mad enough to see it doesn't have to be this way, that there are different ways of doing it for everybody, that that sort of good life, time for meaningful work, not overwork, time for uh, connection with families that's fair, where it's not overloaded, where right now it's very unfair, uh, with women really bearing a lot of the brunt at home, that there are place to, places that are reimagining play and leisure and, and embracing that as part of a full life. So that by the time you got to the end, you would feel like ah, it's not only is it possible, but that there are things that you can do both on the structural level to fight for that bigger change you know, to to change the narrative that we tell ourselves uh, that it is possible to get out and then also to learn some personal mastery along the way from others and sort of things that I've learned so that there are kind of to fight for that change on two levels so that you would end with a feeling of hope. Well, and, and that's exactly what happened. It, there is a lot of hope. And here's the other side is that it sometimes I think you can we can read books and I'll have listeners say, not for the books that I'll bring on, but um Oh, well, that's not really realistic, right? My, this is great, but here's my realities. I mean, you put the realities out there. They are there. And yeah. then in, and it's not like you need to blow up your whole life. What are some tweaks? What are some changes that one can make? Um, to, so that you can be in a more meaningful life, that you can be deliberate about the way you choose to spend your time. Yeah, I did that very much on purpose because when I first started doing the research for this book, the answer seemed to be there was no answer. And the only way to feel sane was to drop out, you know, move to a farm, move to Costa Rica, you know, uh, do some drop out of life. And for so many of us, that is simply not available. You either can't or don't want to, or you wouldn't know what to do on a farm. So that was really my my main goal was to figure out what can we do, all of us, right here, right now, to make our lives better? Uh, and that's, I, I wanted the, that sense of realism because, you know, look, I've got kids. I love my kids. I, you know, I have this job. I really love what I do. How do I just work with what I have to make it better? I, you know, I'm not going to go off to, you know, a, an ashram and meditate <laughs> in a cave for, for months. As lovely and wonderful as that sounds, it's just not available to me right now. So what is available to me? And that was really my motivating factor. What's what's realistic? Well, and that's why your book is real, right? This is about for real women or just real families and people who are trying to figure out how to keep up in this busy life that we have and that we can get in this overwhelming state. So before we go into kind of like how people can, what are the strategies that they can implement what are the real realities that are that people are facing in our culture right now? Yeah, well, and uh, that is a really great question because that was one of the ones that I had. What is it about this particular time in history that makes it seem so much more overwhelming than, say, perhaps in the past? And there are a couple really important things to understand. One, you know, just to start at you know, uh, work, love, and play is is the subtitle. Uh, that came from the Harvard psychologist Eric Erickson, who said the richest and fullest lives maintain some kind of internal balance between the three great arenas of life, work, love, and play, that that's what you really need for the good life. Uh, and so let's just start with work. For white-collar workers, we now have more white-collar workers than ever before. We are turning into a, more of a creative class, a knowledge economy. 
for white-collar workers, work hours and also economic uncertainty have been rising since the 1980s. And this is after a whole century of work hours falling. For those who are in, say, a working class or lower income, you've got different pressures. You have work hours falling, wages stagnating, and costs rising. So you've got this overwhelming sense of trying to cobble together several different jobs just to try to make ends meet. In no city in the United States can you rent a two-bedroom apartment on a minimum wage job. So we've got uh, a structure that doesn't really work for anybody, white collar or blue collar, and our laws and policies are very antiquated that uh, our Fair Labor Standards Act, which sets work hours uh, that was set in 1938, uh, and that's what set the 40-hour work week in motion. And it only protects hourly workers from overtime. You, that's where the whole idea that you got to, you got paid time and a half if you worked over 40 hours came in. Well, guess what? At the time, there were very few salaried or knowledge workers, and now most everybody is. So our laws do not protect salaried knowledge workers from being worked to death. So we've got a real structural disconnect right there. So our policy doesn't support having working, uh, uh, working an authentic and having an authentic life. We also have absolutely no policy that helps people uh, combine work and life in an effective way. We have no paid parental leave. Uh, it's the United States, Papua New Guinea, and Swaziland. <laughs> They're the only ones with no paid parental leave. We have no paid vacation policy, whereas other countries have, say in France, up to 30 days of paid vacation. The UK, 28 days of paid vacation. In the United States, um, the, the workers who have access to vacation, and that's not everybody, get on average uh, about 14 days. And we are one of the most, uh, we're, we're a country that throws most of those vacation days away. We don't even take those days and we take work with us when we do. Uh, so work hours are are becoming more intense. Our parenting standards are higher than they've ever been, particularly for mothers. What we expect of mothers today, and we've never expected of mothers before, and, and that's sort of crazy making when you consider that the majority of mothers work for pay outside the home uh, in in numbers that they that have been increasing since the early 1970s. So we've got this this kind of cognitive disconnect going on with what we expect of mothers. Uh, and it's also at a time when mothers are more and more becoming breadwinners. So we're there, we're expecting them to be super mothers and breadwinners, which is impossible. And at the same time, we value busyness. A hundred years ago, we valued leisure. And people who were the elites showed their status by how much leisure time they had. And what I found in the book is that now we tend to show our status by how busy we are and how much we can cram into our calendar and kind of brag about it to each other. And that we value this kind of breathless state, you know, multitasking. I'm doing a million things. And, uh, you know, rather than understanding that in leisure time, uh, the, the philosopher Bertrand Russell, in his 1932 essay in Praise of Idleness, he said that without leisure time, mankind would never have emerged from barbarism. And that was something that was very surprising <laughs> to me. When you think about it, it is only when you take your nose off the grindstone, when you kind of uh, kind of have that time out of time uh, era, period in your life that you're able to imagine uh, think of different uh, possibilities for the future. Uh, you can daydream, and out of your daydreams came things like the wheel, inventions, you know, scientific discoveries, art, philosophy, literature. That all came 
frankly, all of civilization came in leisure time. And so it's incredibly critical. And now neuroscience is showing how important that is. Uh, and one of the other, the last thing that I'll say is sort of in terms of kind of where we are right now uh, with the standards for parenting, uh, we're overdoing for our kids, which isn't good for them or us. Um, but the other thing that I found, and it really rang true uh, when I looked at leisure research, which I had no idea there was even such a thing, <laughs> that there was a study done around the globe in the 1990s asking women about leisure. And what I found most striking is that it didn't matter what country these women were from, their race, their ethnicity, um, their socioeconomic status, their age. Almost universally, women around the globe did not feel that they deserved leisure time, that they had to earn it. And the only way to earn it was to get to the end of a really long to-do list, which, let's be frank, you'll never get to the end of. Mm -hmm. You will die and still have lots of stuff on your to-do list that you didn't get done. And so that when there was a moment of sort of open time that you potentially could have used for leisure, the women were sort of consumed with guilt and instead they went to their to-do list and they filled it up with busyness. And I found that it rang true for me uh, and I also found that really sad. Uh, and I, I feel like this is an important message of my book is that we're at this moment in history where gender roles have shifted, um, you know, where we're, we're understanding more about how we work and how we're creative, where we could really make some substantial change. And we've got so much, women have made so much progress in so many eras. They're still stuck in so many different ways, but it's really time for women to begin to understand they do deserve that kind of uninterrupted time for leisure right here, right now. And it's going to make you better at everything else that you do. So, Bridget, is leisure the same thing as play? Well, you know, yes and no. You can play in leisure time. Um, uh, what leisure is, the Greeks defined leisure as that place where you refresh your soul or the place where you are most fully human. And so what's important to remember is that's going to be different for everybody. It, leisure is really in the eye of the beholder. What refreshes your soul may not refresh mine. And so that's where you need to take time to pause in this. That's what I never did until I wrote this book. So I know that that's a tall order to ask. Uh, but the only way to, to try to get to that sense of, of, of having time for work, love, and play, finding that time, is to regularly pause and disrupt that cycle of busyness. Understand that there are these external pressures to overwork, to overdo, to overparent, to be busy, and, and really find a way to listen to your own internal compass and decide, am I doing this because it's what I value or am I doing this because it's what I think I should? So begin to um, be more critical in thinking uh, in, in how you think and how you act to understand, is it your compass that you're following, your own inter internal compass, or are you reacting to these larger pressures? And we all as human beings, particularly women, have these different flavors of not enough, feeling that we're not enough, we're not good enough, we're not doing enough, we can never be enough. And so when you have these external forces kind of pushing you on to overwork and to overdo, and it plays on that, those internal feelings of not enough, you're going to automatically get into that sort of mindless busyness and overwhelm. And that's why it's really important, even if it's 10 minutes a week, even if it's just taking a breath after you hang up the phone, to just kind of connect with yourself and think, is this me or is this who I think I should be because other people think I should be this? You, you know, it's it's so interesting because 
for my 20s and a huge part of my 30s, I'm 41 now, my life was so much about achievement, right? It was like, oh, and I wore that badge of honor of let me show you how hard I worked. Let me show you how little sleep I got. Mm -hmm. Let me send these emails at midnight to prove my worthiness in how committed of an employee I am, right? I was like that ideal worker. Yeah. And um, one of the things that I've been working on over, which I find it so funny. I use that word working on over the, <laughs> over the last five years. The, one of the things I've been practicing is this, is the idea of play, right? And I've been really conscientious of it, but I would get frustrated because I would think, wait, I don't want to go to the monkey bars and play like, you know, kids recess. And what is play? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I'm glad that you're di- helping us differentiate what is play and what is leisure. So it sounds like leisure can be play, but it's about creating that space so that you can connect to you and what's going on inside your brain and how does your body feel? Is that what you're saying? Right. And and when you're talking about play, you know, that play is something that you can do in that space of leisure. Mm-hmm. Leisure can be connecting with family and friends, which can also be play. Play can be going to the monkey bars. Play can be um, doing sports. Cl- play can be whatever it is that calls to you that's going to give you a certain lightness of being. Um, that that's uh, um, that's one of the things that I found very interesting in the science of play. That there are um, several different animal species that play as juveniles, you know, and they think that it's it's a way for them to explore the world and sort of learn how to be adults, learn about the environment in a playful way. But they stop playing as adults, and humans are the only uh, species, if you will, that continue to play as adults. And play sculpts your brain. It makes it adaptable, creative, and, and flexible. And that's exactly what we need to create adaptable, creative, and flexible societies. So play can be anything from storytelling, telling jokes, going out and doing something goofy just for the sake of doing something goofy. Um, it doesn't have to have a purpose. And I think that's what's important. As Americans, we tend to think that everything has to be productive and have a purpose. And that's the whole point of play is that it doesn't have a purpose. But I will tell you that if you take that time, that some of the greatest scientific discoveries have been made in those moments of play. Some of the greatest, um, you know, creative moments have come in those moments of play or idleness. For instance, J.K. Rowling, the, you know, mm-hmm. at the time she was a researcher for Amnesty International. She's stuck on a train on the tracks between Manchester and London. Everybody else is, you know, they take their briefcases out. This is in the era before smartphones, and I'm sure everybody would have been playing Candy Crush or, you know, answering emails. But everybody around her takes out their work, their newspapers, their magazines, and she stares out the window. Uh, you know, you could say sort of playing, daydreaming. And in four hours, she said the entire plot of the magical Harry Potter series simply fell into her brain. So play is important, even when it seems like it doesn't have a purpose. So Bridget, as you were talking about that, I'm like, oh, and in our country, you know, when we find something that's good for us, we wind up making it, you know, about having a purpose. So even though this play is not about having a purpose, right? I call it a transactional relationship. Mm. Now that we know the research, it's like, well, of course we need to go play so that we can have this happen. 
I mean, I hate to say that, but that's, that is part of why I talk about the research a lot, because I know that particularly as American and particularly as women, we feel guilty and we won't give ourselves that time unless we feel that it's productive. <laughs> and so I am sort of harping on that research, hoping that that will give people the permission to go do it. And then once you give yourself that permission, you put it into your calendar until it becomes a habit, then hopefully it'll take over on its own and you can stop trying to justify it. But you're right. I mean, sometimes I feel badly, oh, be idle to be productive. I mean, I feel terrible <laughs> saying that. And yet I do feel like it's the first way to get the message out there that you do need this time. Your brain needs it. Your body needs it. Your soul and your mind need it. But, but and that, that may be why I love research so much is because it does give me that permission instead of like, oh, well, this just feels good and I should just follow that, right? I know, I know. And I did that. I, it's a heavily researched book because of that very reason. Because I think what I'm asking people to do is counterintuitive in some ways or kind of iconoclastic. I'm telling people not to work so hard. I'm telling you to do hard work, but not overwork. You know, I'm telling people to reimagine their relationships. You know, we tend to think that they're sort of calcified or that women are just naturally wired to be the the primary parent. And I found science that shows that that's not necessarily the case, that men are wired for nurture uh, and that you can share the load. You don't have to have that maternal gatekeeping, which is frankly what I did, you know, that you can have relationships uh, that are much fairer. You can share the load. And I'm saying that you can make time for play. Uh, that when you put it on the top of your to-do list, it does get done. Well, what great permission that you're giving people because like I think about the times that I just love so much and one is connecting with people, right? And talking, obviously, but connecting with people and talking like not where it's on the air or it's work-based, but just connecting. And I used to have so much shame because that's not a, that's not a good use of my time. Mm. right? And so much judgment. And so basically what you're doing is with the research in your book is that you're giving people permission, people like me, right? To say, no, this is actually is part of your well-being mm -hmm. to do this. Right. And if I need to make the argument right now that taking care of your well-being and having time to connect with friends and family you know, frank, frankly, not that we need it. Grandma could have told this, but science is now finding that close human connection, that's the foundation for human happiness. And if you if you take care of yourself, if you have that sense of well-being, you are going to do better work. You are going to be more productive and efficient. You're going to have better relationships. When you take time to take care of yourself, you're actually going to be doing better at everything. So isn't it that we got this way, not because... Um we weren't, we're not programmed that way, but, or we're not, you know, in, intrinsically wired that way, but we've been programmed by society that said, no, especially like for women. I remember I struggled with this when I was um, working in a college and I was on, on tenured and everything was, you know, you need to keep these worlds separate and you need to be at work or at home, that kind of thing. And it was not allowing for those connections. Like you shouldn't be missing your child. You shouldn't be, you know, so we've been kind of programmed to not want these human connections. Is that what's happened? I think that you're exactly right. You know, one of the things that I found that I found disturbing, but also really rang true 
is, uh, as I was doing my research, I wanted to try to understand the workplace. You know, and I work at the Washington Post and I have been, I'm an admitted recovering workaholic. So I've been in these uh, environments where I've had editors who say, I know the best employees because when I walk out here at 11 o'clock at night, they're still here. Well, you know, I know better now that that's not true. And in fact, <laughs> half those people are probably playing solitaire and burned out, but they're there because they know <laughs> that's what the boss values. So they're going to be sitting there, but they're really no more than a butt in the chair. Mm-hmm. And so our workplaces are really insane in that we we value the wrong things. And yet we're so caught up in it um, that we can't sort of see straight. Um, so... It, so I think that that's, um, that's really one of the important messages that I'm trying to bring out is, uh, what is work? What is your mission? How do you define it? Uh, and then, you know, um, how do you make time to be authentic? Because if you're an authentic human being, you do have time for work, love, and play. And a lot of our workplaces, um, they don't value that. What I found so striking was, uh, for instance, there was a, a survey done of some of the uh, in some of the biggest uh, companies around the globe, and they asked CEOs and managers, "Who is the ideal worker? Who is your best worker?" And more than seventy five percent said the best workers have no caregiving responsibilities. Well, so who is that? That's certainly not the mothers who we tend to have uh, leave with uh, as you know the default caregiving responsibilities. That's also not any of the of the men who want to be more than just the distant provider father or the fun parent or the helper dad. So our workplaces really still value the 1950s model of the organization man. And there have been ra- reams of social science and really interesting. Uh, tests of unconscious bias that show that that's really true. And so part of what I want to do with this book is uncover that, that that's not true. It, and it's never been true. And so it's time to sort of bust those mythologies and really change the workplace uh, so that you can have an authentic life and still do really excellent, meaningful work. I think the the best example of that is uh, the bright spots that I found of workplaces that are already changing. And I found them in the most unlikely places, the Pentagon, Stanford <laughs> Medical University, a law firm and a high tech firm. And what was most interesting about that is that they're using human performance science. They're they're valuing short flexible, intense work hours, and they're valuing people going out and being exposed to different things, having time with their families, because they know they'll come to work the next day and not only be refreshed and happier, but they will have seen different things. Their brain, our brains are always seeking novelty. And so, you know, they will be exposed to different things. They'll come back to work and their brains will be primed to solve old problems in new ways, simply because they've been exposed to different things. And so, uh, these places are not only having, you know, they not only have happier and refreshed employees, they're doing better work and they're profitable. And I think the more that we can shine a spotlight on those places, doing it differently, change the stories we tell ourselves about what is good work and what does it take to get there, the more we'll see more and more change. Uh, you know, one of the things I found most interesting is that we tend to think these long hours are what make us number one, what, you know, what make us so productive. And that's not the case. When I, when you look at these international comparisons of productivity by the hour, not just long hours, that we're not the most productive by hour. Norway beats us by a mile 
Ireland is more productive by the hour. Luxembourg and all of those countries like France and Denmark with lots of vacation and family-friendly policies, they are about as productive per hour as we are, and they are not working as much. They're paid more, and they have lives. So that, I think, is a real wake-up call for all of us to change the way we're doing things. So why are those countries more productive than us? Because they have short, intense, flexible work hours. And when you're at work, you're at work. And when you're at home, you're at home. You know, France just passed the law that you, for a certain number of workers, you cannot answer work emails or texts or cell phone uh, cell phone calls after hours. Well, I found places here in the United States that do that. Menlo Innovations is a software company in Ann Arbor, and it is frowned upon. They want you to go home and have a life because you're going to be fresher in the morning when you come home after having a break. And I think that's what neuroscience is showing, is that when we work in intensive pulses, uh, have uninterrupted, concentrated time, and that's important, the uninterruption. Uh, so much of our time with technology is distracted and fragmented. So if you're going to, if you turn off your email, your cell phones, your um your social media, and set your timer for 90 minutes and work in that intensive pulse, and then take a break, and then work in another intensive pulse. Choose one thing to do and do it until it's done, and then take a break. That they're finding that people are not only more productive, but that is actually how um, uh, people do excellent work. That that came out of a study. We uh, remember when we heard about you need 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to be a master or excellent at anything. So in classic American fashion, we thought we had to dive in and just do 10,000 <laughs> hours of constant nose to the grindstone. Well, what people missed is the way people, they, the most excellent musicians put in those 10,000 hours. And if you look at the how they organize their days, it, it looks like jagged mountain peaks intense periods of work with intense periods of rest, intense period of work with an intense period of rest. They did those 10,000 hours, but you know they worked hard, but they napped more than people who were not as excellent. So I think that's really important that uh, the 40-hour work week is an artifact of uh, Henry Ford, who brought in outside experts to figure out how far could he push manual laborers on his assembly line before they fell apart and got you know, stupid and tired and started co- making costly mistakes. But we don't know how far can you push a knowledge worker before you just simply become a butt in the chair answering emails or playing solitaire. So that's why they're more productive is because we think it's probably about six hours a day. We're not really sure, but it's not eight hours and it's not 10, 12, and 14 hours. We actually know that. There have been studies that we've done here in the United States that show you can probably push your workers to work 60 hours a week for maybe two or three weeks. But after that, they get burned out, disengaged, and you're just sort of sitting there in the office. You're not creative anymore, nor all that productive. So my husband, my listeners know this, my husband's a swim coach and he's developed a few Olympians and everything that you're saying is what he has, um, that's what it takes to develop Olympians. So often people will say, oh, you know, Scott must be training hours upon hours in the pool. And he does train and he does put in, you know, he's over his career, he's put in quite a few hours and he's put in well over 10,000 hours. He's probably about 16,000 at this point. But you know, it, the practices are typically no longer than two hours for a swim workout and no longer than 90 minutes if he's in a weight room workout. But the intensity is very, very high. 
and he will sleep anywhere from seven to 11 hours. Yes. In between. I think that, you know, if we can learn from how elite athletes train, I think that's also really important. You know, and, and we cannot push our bodies without them breaking down. We have to have, like you're saying, that intense period of training followed by recovery. We work the same way. Our brain works the same way. And there's lots and lots of emerging science to show that. Well, because isn't there science showing, I think you refer to it in your book, Overwhelmed, but about how the learning that happens and then your brain at night while you're sleeping is kind of um, you know, programming that learning deeper into your brain. Isn't that what's happening? Right. Sleep is critical. You know what Ariana Huffington talks about, you know, take a nap, get more rest is based on really solid science. Uh, you know, that if you're wondering why so many like mothers in particular are, you know, overwhelmed, stressed and harried and can't remember anything. Because when you're trying to, you know, get through the day on the fumes of about four or five, maybe six hours of sleep, you don't have enough time to process memories in your neocortex. So you can't remember stuff. And I certainly found that, you know, uh, for so many years, I didn't get enough sleep. And that's still something I'm working on. Uh, you know, I've developed a lot of bad habits that I'm really trying to work on now. Um, but my kids would come to me. It's like, oh, mom, do you remember such and such? And they they talk about some cute memory. And I would get so sad because I honestly couldn't remember it. And that's because I literally was not giving my brain enough time to rest, to consolidate those memories and to be able to store them in a place where I could recall them. So sleep. Ariana's right. We need to sleep. So sleep and leisure time. And oh, I want before we move forward, I want to ask something about leisure time. Sometimes I find some of my best thinking happens when, you know, I'm a mom, I have kids, right? And so, but sometimes when I get those five minute, 10 minute rides in my car, and a lot of times I want to learn and I have something playing, but sometimes I just want it to be quiet because I need, that may be my only reflection that I have for that part of the day until maybe I can finally put my head on the pillow. (laughs) Would that be considered leisure time? I think it depends on how you feel. The most important thing to remember when I've talked to leisure scholars, leisure requires two things, a sense of choice and a sense of control. And so, uh, you know, is driving in your car and contemplating leisure, true leisure time? Well, it might be making the most of where you are. Mm -hmm. You know, so I don't know that the definition matters so much as what you do with the time. Um, you know, and I think that what you're talking about, though, sort of maybe making the most of where we are, that's really important. There's a lot that we can control and there's a lot that we can't. So making the most of where you are right now really matters. And, you know, when you talk about getting some of your best ideas driving, that's the other thing that, you know, the aha moment, it comes when you're not kind of sitting at your desk or with your nose to the grindstone and trying to hammer it out at work. Our brains are actually wired for the aha moment to come in downtime when you're relaxed and calm. And it's like, it's fascinating with the neuroscience that's coming out. It's sort of your brain floods with these gamma rays and it comes in a completely different part of your brain. Uh, And it comes in those off moments. So one of the things that I think is really important for people to do is, you know, I carry around like a little notebook or have your smartphone ready or something to dictate if you're driving to capture those ideas when they come. Because the other thing that kind of makes you kind of feel overwhelmed is trying to keep all this stuff in your brain all the time. When our brains really have not changed since the the Cro-Magnon era, that's one of the other reasons for feeling overwhelmed. 
our working memory can really only store seven pieces of information at any one time. So, so help yourself. Know that you're kind of always be ready for those moments of inspiration or like remembering, oh, I got to do this and write it down. When you write it down, you're telling your brain you can rest. It lives somewhere else. So, so you can, you know, you don't have to expend any energy trying to remember it. And just giving your brain a rest actually helps you feel less panicked. Uh, and overwhelmed. And that's, I always carry around a, a little notebook. And it's not that all the ideas are great inspirations, and I may not act on all of them, but it, just to get them out of my head, uh, that, that just helps feel, uh, it just helps me feel better. So one of the things that I've done this year is I have this, I, I'm like a journal collector, would always buy a journal with the idea that this is going to change my life, right? So I have tons of um, unused journals, because then you have to create space to actually write in them. But so, so at the end of last year, you know, all the planners, they're coming out. It's all online. Everybody keeps sending stuff in their in emails. And so I bought one and I thought, oh, this is lovely. Well, I looked at it and I started just, I noticed that I got really tense because now I was having to format to this journal, to the way it was set up. And mm -hmm. so instead I went to one of my old journal, my old notebooks that I don't like to use anymore because I like my moleskins. And I thought, this is great. It's a spiral bound. It can stay open. And so what I do is I just handwrite Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and I start writing stuff down. So today before we got on the show, you know, there were things I was like, oh, next week I want to remember to do this. Oh, next week. And it was great because you're right. It was like a brain dump, right? Mm -hmm, right? I put it there. It's now taken care of. I can look at it. And then the other thing that I just love to do is I get to cross it off when I get it done. So I still have that little bit of badge of, ooh, look at what I accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that is important. You know, it's important to have that sense of accomplishment and that we're moving through our days and getting things done. I think what's important to remember, though, that, that's certainly something that I faced, is to understand to set realistic expectations. And that goes back to that sense of not enough. When you have those feelings of not enough, your to-do list, like mine was, can be, you know, 70, oh, I'm going to get 75 things done. <laughs> you know, and then you set yourself up for failure and for feeling inadequate. And so I took this, uh, this is advice that Tony Schwartz with the Energy Project gives. You know, he says, choose one thing to do. And so now my running partner and I in the morning, we'll finish our run and we'll turn to each other and we'll say, what's your one thing today? And you, and you have to give it some thought. Okay, this is the one thing that's most important. And then I try to do that first. And if that's the only thing I cross off my list, then the day is a win. You know, it sets you up for success. It just sets you up for feeling better. Uh, you know, because we can't get 75 things done in a day. And so it's it's a way to help you modulate your own unrealistic expectations. So can you give us some examples of like what it, because when, when I had, I did have like some anxiety, Bridget, I have to admit, I was like, one thing. I mean, I've kind of gotten my list down and I also am okay knowing it's more of a master list, right? Mm -hmm. Right. But, but that one thing I was like, okay, now what would that one thing be? So can you give us some examples? It's it's whatever is, I think it's whatever is most bugging you or that you most want to do. So some days, honest to God, it's uh, the mo the one thing I want to do today is fold the laundry, you know, because <laughs> sometimes I put that at the, at the bottom of my list. That is one thing that I have really changed. I, I've sort of squished the Martha Stewart in my brain because that that and the ideal mother and the ideal worker will just make you crazy trying to do all of that. So sometimes it really backs up, 
So if that's what's really bugging me, that will be the first thing that I want to do. And then I cross that off the list and then it kind of gives me a, a space to breathe then for the rest of the day. Other days it will be, you know, writing this story is the most important thing and I'll do that first. And then whatever else I do is a win. Today, for instance, I'm in LA and I have a plane back to Washington, D.C. where I live. My one thing today is to get on that plane because tomorrow is my husband's birthday and it's really important for me to be there. This podcast is fantastic. I love the stuff that I'm doing in LA, but my one thing today is to get on that plane. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. So let's talk about you. How has this book changed your life? Well, let's see. Where do I start? Um, I tell you, when I read chapter one, I get as breathless as you did. <laughs> it's hard to go back there. I, I remember what it felt like to be there, and I don't feel that I'm there anymore. And that's probably the best thing I can say. I am no lifestyle guru. I want to say that right now. I am still very much a work in progress. But that's what's exciting. I'm a work in progress. I still make mistakes. I still have stupid days. There are days I work too much. There are days I don't sleep enough. You know, um, I'm still really struggling. But what's exciting is that I'm on the road. And before I wrote this book, I didn't think change was possible. I just thought, oh, I made the choice to be a working mother, and this is just the price I have to pay. And I think what's nice is seeing the bright spots, learning all the research, uh, Um, and understanding that the world doesn't have to be this way. This is not a price I have to pay, that it can be different. It gives me hope even when I kind of screw up and make mistakes and fall back into old patterns. Um, So how have things changed? Uh, I really, really try hard not to overwork just for the sake of it. And like I say, I'm a recovering workaholic. So that's a real challenge for me. Earlier this week, I did. I stayed up too late working on a story. It was a deadline story. It was important to me to do. So I was really tired when I got on the plane to come out here to LA. And it was really important to me to be, to have energy, to share this message with people. And so I thought the only way I can do that is once I land, even though I've got tons of stuff to do, I gave myself permission to take the afternoon off. And I swam in the pool. And I laid, you know, I just uh, sat on these wonderful cushions in the shade and I read a book. And two years ago, I would never have given myself permission to do that. But I needed that time to rest, to recharge. It was sort of like uh, I I had felt like I had earned it. So it will be a challenge to see if I can let myself do that without having worked late, you know, a couple Mm -hmm. nights before. But uh, to, to be able to do that without guilt and knowing that that's exactly what I needed and to know that it was going to make me better because I would have the energy and be refreshed to talk to people and connect. Uh, that was huge. You know, my husband and I have made great strides. We are certainly nowhere. We are not perfect. But I write in the in the book about how bad it had gotten between us with me doing everything and feeling resentful all the time. We've made really great strides to try to share things more fairly, to communicate more openly, to be honest about the work that it takes to run our house and the way we want to raise our kids and to share it more fairly. Um, You know, like for instance, uh, we just had a talk the other day and my husband's like, oh, the kids need to reschedule their dentist appointments and, you know, our son needs a doctor's appointment. And I looked at him and I said, what do you want to do? He goes, I'll do the dentist, you do the doctor. I'm like, great. 
Whereas a couple years ago, he would have said that and I would have felt like, oh, it's my responsibility. I have to do it all. And I would have done it and I would have been resentful. So we've really come to uh, an understanding that we're really more the full partners that we thought that we would be uh, before we had kids. And then we kind of slid into these traditional gender roles without meaning to. So that's helping. That's changed a lot. And it's made our relationship better because I don't feel angry all the time and I'm not nagging all the time. And now we involve our kids. We've given them chores to do, that they're part of the family. And that's really important, too. So I'm not carrying the whole load. So now the kids have chores. If they don't do them, you know, it's not like I dock them allowance or anything. I put up a time bank. It's like, all right, you didn't empty the kitty litter. I did it. You now owe me my 10 minutes back. (laughs) And so I keep a time bank because what I want back is my time. And so then they owe me something else. They need to do something that will free up my time in another way. So uh, we do things more in terms of how do moments feel? Like for the, for instance, this year for Thanksgiving, how do we want to feel today rather than what do we think that this should look like? Cause this is what Martha Stewart says it should look like. So it's really, it's kind of, cha- we've changed the way that we approach even the holidays. And I think one of the biggest things I've done is I work in pulses when I can. And I, I am no longer subjected to what I used to call the tyranny of my to-do list. I used to think I had to do all of this bajillion things on my to-do list and then I could relax and, or, or have fun. And so, uh, what I, what I've done is, um, I flipped it. I, I do very few things. I set my priorities. I pick just a handful of things that are most important, that one thing to do a day. And then I make sure that when I write my to-do list, I have work. I have time for work. I have time for love, which is not just this, you know, stuff and running around, but really time to connect with the family. You know, we light candles for dinner. We make sure we have dinner together. Um, we, I, I try to make sure that if we're going to do dishes, we make time to be goofy and dance and, you know, take time to connect. And then I really, uh, I do make a concerted effort to make time to play. And uh, that's on my to-do list. I, I took great uh, I, I took great inspiration from, say, Johnny Cash's to-do list. I found that the other day, and I love it. He said, things to do today. One, don't smoke. You know, number two, kiss June. Number three, not kiss anyone else. I mean, that's <laughs> You know, at, at the end of your life, you know, your work is not going to be there holding your hand when you die. You know, you're not going to remember all the laundry you folded or what was most important. You're going to remember those connections. You're going to remember those moments that really made your life. And so put those moments, schedule them in, put them on your to-do list because that's what makes life worth living. So that almost sounds like a takeaway for the listeners. Are there a couple of takeaways that of strategies that you use to help with your change in your life? Yeah, I pause regularly. Um, I, I worked with this wonderful woman named Jessica DeGroote with the Third Path Institute when I was trying to figure out how do we, how do we share the division of labor more fairly in our home? And we ended up becoming great friends. And so what we do is we trade time. Uh, We each take 10 minutes every week. It's a regular check-in. And it's, how is it going? How are you managing work, love, and play? How are you making time? What's working? What's not? Are you frustrated? Uh, Did you have a win? What do you want to work on? And it's a regular time to pause, kind of step outside my life, take a breath, look at it, and, and really think, am I making 
making time for things that are important. If work feels overwhelming, why? And is there something I can do about it? And she feels that, you know, she gets a chance to work the same thing out. It's, uh, she, it's a technique she calls active listening. So you, you get to talk and all, and, and the other person just listens in a supportive role. You're not agreeing, you're not offering suggestions, but at the end, uh, what's interesting is that when you just let it out with a supportive listener, sometimes the next step, an experiment, an idea will come to you uh, and it, you get clearer about where you are, where you want to go, and and maybe an experiment that you can try to help you get there. So that's really important, pausing, um, really setting my own priorities, being aware of the pressures to overdo uh, and taking that time to figure out, is this what I want or am I just reacting to the pressure? And then like Jessica, finding a supportive network of peers because changing and fighting against that status quo, is tough to do on your own. So find a network of support that can support you in things that you value in making time for work, love and play. And I really watch how I talk. You know, we used to say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm so fried. I'm so busy. I really try to say, I had a great weekend last weekend and look at this fun thing that we did. I try to change the conversation and I try to inject hope into my day and I, I remember the bright spots and I try to share that. Uh, and I, 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 I really try to take to heart that I do deserve leisure. Uh, I don't have to earn it. Uh, <laughs> I deserve it right here, right now. Uh, and that um, one of the most important things I can do is uncontaminate my mind so that when I'm in that moment, I can fully, uh, I can fully be in the moment. Bridget, thank you so much. This has been a fabulous talking with you today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've just loved talking with you. This is Corinne Motokaitis and Bridget Schulte, who's the author of Overwhelmed Work, Love and Play When No One Has the Time was the guest today. So are you feeling less overwhelmed now? Wasn't that great? I had so much fun talking with her. One of the things that we talked about after we got off the air was um, a couple things that we didn't, we just ran out of time to talk about. And there are two things. One is when you have stress and overwhelm, it creates, the neuroscientists have found that it actually creates your brain to shrink. So that is something to think about if that gives you evidence, right? To go, wait a second. I, I need as much brain power as I possibly can. I know myself as a 41-year-old woman, I need as much brain power as I possibly can have. So that's something that I'm going to be more deliberate about. The other thing that was great, and this is from her book, but the neuroscientists at Harvard found that people's gray matter expanded after only eight weeks of meditating, practicing yoga, or, and this is important for those of you that don't meditate or practice yoga, just noticing how their bodies felt for as little as 27 minutes a day, 27 minutes, right? 27 minutes. And it's about, if you don't meditate, if you don't practice yoga, it's about connecting with how your body is feeling, listening to that. That's one of the things that I work with my clients on is just teaching them how to reconnect with our bodies that we were we learned to become so disconnected from. She also talks about the process of learning to focus fully on the present moment. When we're discovering that, when we slow down, when we learn to pause and notice where we are and feel at home, our complex brain literally grows bigger. So remember, fear and overwhelm, worry, I'm sure would go in there, is going to shrink the brain. Slowing down, being reflective, connecting with your body and how it feels 
is going to grow your brain. So that's just a great strategy and a takeaway for you about what do I want to do? And it doesn't mean that you have to do it perfectly, right? And one of the reasons that I loved her book was she talked about how, you know, it wasn't intentional in her marriage about this imbalance between, you know, the childcare and the responsibilities of what was going on. But over time, the scales had tipped to her having more of the responsibility and going through this process of writing the book and looking at the research and having help, you know, the support networks that she talked about, where she got clear about what is it that I want? What is my husband capable of? Instead of running around, you know, like I've done in the past and been a martyr, but getting really clear and tweaking and practicing. So if you all of a sudden you look up and you have this insight into your life right now and go, oh my gosh, I'm so far off the path of what I thought my life would be. That's okay. Because remember one of the things that Bridget said was prior to writing this book, she didn't believe that change was possible. And now that she's written this book and she's personally experienced it and seen all this research, she knows that change is possible. And it's not about getting to some perfect promised land because there's no such thing. And one of the things that I'm sure you're familiar with is that I like to use the word practice, right? We're constantly practicing. We're practicing, we're reevaluating, checking to see, does this still fit our values? This just, does, does this still fit our priorities, right? And then what are the things that we can shift or tweak? And what are the things that we're, it's still good to go? And that even happens with me with food. Like there's certain things that I like and I get into that routine and it's, it makes it really simple. And I use less units of energy trying to figure out what to eat. And then after a while, I'm like, okay, I'm done with that. And then a new thing kind of sparks my interest, right? It's usually the new thing sparks my interest and I let the other thing go. That's the truth of the matter. But, and there are things that I go, wow, I really didn't see that coming. I didn't think this would, would I be eating for lunch now? So, but as you tune into what it is that you want, as you tune into how you feel, that will give you much more insight. One of the things that I wanted to talk about when she was talking about workers face time and is a story that I'll share with you. And I'm not sure, quite sure how far I'll go into this. Um, not totally sure I'm ready to be 100% candid. But when I was at the college and I was tenured and I was young um, and tr- I was total approval whore, was always trying to win the approval of my um, bosses. And I remember one time my dean came into my office and he was really upset. And he literally told me that I needed to be in my office from seven in the morning until seven o'clock at night, just like the other male coaches were. And I looked at him and I thought about it and I was like, well, you know, I come in, I'm really productive. I get my work done. My results speak for themselves. But he didn't care because all that mattered was how long I was sitting in my office you know, the men that he was judging me against, he didn't realize, you know, he didn't care if they were coming in reading the paper, if they were just hanging out, just talking about stuff. There were other stuff that was going on that I'm not going to talk about right now. But, you know, it was for him about FaceTime. That is what he valued. And that was a huge conflict with my own values of trying to take care of my family. Right. And he disregarded the results of I had a successful team. I had, you know, these huge health classes that I was teaching. So those are things to think about, like when, when you're in alignment with your values and when you're not, I mean, that's one of the big things for me was that when I was in that workplace, I was really out of alignment with my values. You know, what they were telling me, what was important, didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. To sit in my office for 12 hours didn't make a whole lot of sense. But at the time, it made a whole lot of sense 
to work from nine until midnight at home to prove how hard I was working, right? And sending emails and, you know, being on the discussion boards on my online health class and all kinds of stuff. Let me show you. I may not be in the office from seven to seven, but let me show you I'm a committed ideal worker, right? So those are things that I have worked on overcoming and I'm less now interested in what people think. And in fact, I'm so protective about my boundaries that sometimes when I, I feel like I'm more the closet worker, I don't tend to work at night. My brain doesn't operate that well. And, but sometimes, you know, I, there's things that I just want to get done. Notice the want to get done instead of I have to get done or I should. And I will come in and I will type up emails, but I won't send them because I don't want people to get into that expectation that I will be around at 10 o'clock at night. Um, recently this, this actually did occur and I can't remember why, but I made the decision to go into my office. It was about nine o'clock at night. I worked till about 1030 and I did, I, I needed some information right away. So I did, I made a very deliberate decision. I said, you know, if I send this email, then this person will know that I was working late at night. Is that something I'm comfortable with? And in this particular situation, it was fine. Um, if it was maybe a different person, I may not have sent it. So those are the kinds of things that I think about where is this in line with my values? Is this in line with my priorities? Is this helping me to create well-being in my own life so that I can really thrive and serve my people, right? The radio show, the swim team, my clients, my family, myself, and actually myself should be on top of the list. We'll let go of that word should. So those are things to think about and I hope you have a great day. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. I do this show each week for you so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.howshereallydoesit.com. And thanks for listening today. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wild.